Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. Greg, come in here. What is it? Well, I'm announcing my annual list of the top 10 numbers between 1 and 10. This is something you do? Mm-hmm. Well, starting this year. Are you ready? Uh, I guess so. At number 10, 2. Huh. 2 had a bad year? Yeah. Back to the Future 2 takes place in 2015 when there are flying cars and hoverboards and no lawyers. And none of that stuff even happened. Bad 2. Okay. Keep going. Number 9, 9. Seriously, nine. You have to try harder if you want to get out of ninth place. Otherwise, you're just this weird Beatles song. Number eight, six. Half a dozen? Half a dozen what? There wasn't even half a dozen of anything this year. Number seven, four. And that's a gift. Fantastic Four was one of the worst movies of the year. Number six, seven. Seven is the new two. I could really see seven taking off and maybe getting to number four next year. This is getting really hard to follow. Number five, ten. See, unfortunately, 10 is on the way down, not on the way up. Remember how people used to say, she's a 10, but now it's 13 at least, and Spinal Tap speakers go up to 11. If I were 10, I'd hire a publicist. Number four is five. Five is trending. I I like what I saw five doing this year. Halo 5, Scandal, season five, Homeland, season five. In a weaker field, five could have been one. Exactly. Now, number three is eight. Eight, eight is timeless. You could put it on its side and it's infinity. Number two is one. I think everybody agrees that number one needs to be taken down a peg. And number one on my annual list of the top ten numbers between one and ten. Virtual drum roll. Three. <laughs> and that's because? It was the only number left. Today on the nose, year-end lists, candidate quirks, and new trends and forms of address. And now he challenged Marco Rubio to a water-drinking contest and had an accident. Colin McEnroe. You know, I underestimated him. I thought I could just keep up with him the way he drinks water, but it turns out you need to train. You need to get yourself ready for this. So, uh, first of all, welcome to The Nose, uh, our weekly conversation about culture, broadly interpreted, that word, culture. Uh, joining us now is Rand Richards Cooper, a writer, critic, uh, gourmand, etc. Uh, and uh, also with us from the Mark Twain House is Jacques Lamar, also a playwright. And then from the world of letters, uh, it is Rebecca Castell- Castellani. From the world of letters and Scotland, uh, Rebecca <laughs> Castellani. So, uh, the, and speaking of the world of letters, we're going to start out. I'll tell you our, our secondary and tertiary topics. I hope we can get to all of them today. But uh, so a little bit later in the show, we are going to be talking about the proliferation of year-end lists, including, of course, lists of the top 10 numbers between 1 and 10. But most of them are, you know, best movies, best this, best, best that. I happen to enjoy this season. It's my favorite time of the year. I love uh, end-of-the-year lists, but not everybody does. This And this year, even the Obamas, the Obamas put out their best-of lists. Uh, I think that's a first for a presidential couple. I could be wrong. Anyway, uh, do we find them um, assaulting, or do we actually enjoy having them around? Uh, we'll also talk very specifically about one kind of um, year-end list. Uh, and then towards the end, we're going to talk about, first of all, Marco Rubio's water drinking and also uh, this kind of footage dump of uh, Ted Cruz trying to f- uh, record campaign moments with his family uh, and sort of just the general awkwardness of Ted Cruz and, and, and about whether or not quirky candidates are endearing or they 
just freak us out? Uh, and if so, what's the difference? So all of that is uh, yet to come, but we're going to start out in the world of letters with a couple of things that have happened this week. Uh, actually, it was sort of last Wednesday, the New York Times um, announced or at least used a new honorific or form of address, MX period, mix, in a story that quoted uh, Sir Senya Hardwick a bookshop employee who didn't want to be assigned a gender by the newspaper. Um, this is an increasingly increasing problem. The Washington Post has been experimenting with they as a singular pro- pronoun, so it would be Cecilia Hardwick uh, talked about the things that they would put on their, her, on their top ten list, but that would be only Cecilia Hardwick who would be doing that. It's very complicated, very hard. So... Um, <laughs> We've got a lot of other things that in the world of sort of grammar and usage that we'll try to get through as fast as we can. It's really complicated. It's really hard. And, and so, uh, Rand Cooper, I'll, I'll start with you. Do you regard this as an intriguing challenge to try to tackle all this new stuff? Or would we be better off just not messing around with the language so much? Well, um, of course, uh, the, the reality of the new is inescapable. And language must eventually find... Um, useful ways to accommodate it. So one of the things, uh, I'm going to express some particular skepticism about about, uh, they and about mix, but let's just deal with principles um, and uh, and temperaments first. One thing that's always interesting to me um, about new words and what's allowed in is um, and, and changes in language generally, they sort of reveal people's political, for want of a better word, temperaments vis-a-vis change. And that's got nothing to do with what your politics are. I mean, I have just standard liberal left-of-center uh, opinions about things, but I tend to view a lot of these changes with, like, instinctive skepticism, sort of the inner conservative comes out. Um, and that's something that, you know, I'm aware has to be kept at bay. Now, with they, it just seems to me a wildly unfortunate choice of an alternate of an alter, alternate pronoun because it's so frankly confusing is for the reason you just said. Yeah, it's very hard to get through. I think we did talk about this one time uh, before. Um, on the other hand, Rebecca, as Rand says, the language is changing. Something has to be done. There are people. Well, I, I guess it's not axiomatic that just because there are people who want the language to do something that it has to do that. But it usually does. I think that keeping a record of our language, no matter how seemingly inane, I think you know, adding words like fleek and yes with Three A's to the dictionary is, you know, on the surface, rather crazy. But keeping a record of history through language has been something we've been doing since the dawn of language and something I believe we should continue doing. Well, how about this form of address thing? I mean, one argument you could make is just get rid of forms of address, well, right? Well, yeah, that's my next point there because I still get so bent out of shape when I have to fill out a form and I have to just differentiate between Miss, Ms., and Mrs., and men get Mr. So why is my marital status necessary when men get one term? And now... We have all these other terms. Why do we even need it anymore? I, you know, you are who you are. People know you. Usually you can kind of tell by a name. And why does it matter? Because the New York Times, on second reference, always refers to Meatloaf as Mr. Loaf. And stuff like that. <laughs> so they always they feel the need to do that. And so, Jacques, but, I, you know, I, I... Did they really call him Mr. Loaf? They call him Mr. Loaf. Stevie Wonder's Mr. Wonder. I mean, you know. Um, Unnecessary. So. Mr. Loaf. I like that. M. Loaf. If, he, if he's MX, then he's Mixed Loaf. He could be a Mixed Loaf, yeah, which sounds delicious, actually. Mixed Loaf sounds really good. So, I, Jacques, I think I can guess why Rand is going to have a very specific question about MX period pronounced mix. Because, like, it sort of sounds wrong somehow, right? Um, yeah, I mean, I was actually uh, the 
first time coming across Mix, I was handed a business card uh, from a transgender individual, and they and I noticed that they the the prefix was Mix, mm-hmm. or not prefix, was the honorific mm-hmm. uh, was was Mix, and so I know that this person identifies as transgender so I was I didn't ask how it was pronounced I ended up going on the uh, interwebs to find out um, I mean I know this person well enough that I would just refer to them by their first name anyway but you might say in the words of the song have you met Mix Jones <laughs> <laughs> me and Mix Jones yeah, mixes mixes yeah. so I the, you know I it, it's interesting because I have a, a, a transgender friend on Facebook who was very upset about how their playwright and how they were being um, addressed by a critic um, in the review uh, or in a review because they wanted to be referred to as they instead of she. You did it really well just then. You, yeah. uh, you, you did it <laughs> seemingly effortlessly. Well, you know, I mean, the thing is I have a lot of transgender friends and I've fallen into potholes. And I think if you – I think there is a certain amount of wanting to own how you – how, you know, the gender I, that you identify with and that gender is fluid and that there is – you know, there are places between Mr. and Ms. or Mr. and Miss or Mrs. Uh, and – um, so I think that there's a certain kind of, um, you know, creating your own identity that's happening with these words. And there's there's uh, there's a kind of a, a political, sociopolitical component to saying that we want to be addressed differently. And what, now when I see a form, I was at the doctor's office and there was a choice of to check off male or female. I felt bad for my friends who are, you know, believe that they are, uh, you know, somewhere in between. Um Mix, though, sounds like a Kali mix or something like that. I don't know if I would pick that well, one. Well, first of all, there's the, the – wasn't it the MX missiles um, you know, back? So there's, <laughs> there's, there, there's an awkward um, uh, military reference. But uh, I, I would just shear off the principles that Jacques um, just eloquently articulated from, from this particular solution – which is they is a it's confusing b there's like this weird almost demonic um you know Beelzebub like 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 in in the in the shining you know when when uh, not the shining in uh, the exorcist when we are legion we are legion there's, so there's this we are legion a part of it i don't know how many people are going to make that well it also corresponds to um you know to a sort of standard grammatical error when a plural a pronoun is used in places when singular should be. They're just. I'm not objecting at all to the principle that Jacques articulated. I think this particular so solution is, word? is yeah. multiply awkward. And there are think there should be a different and word, and like there, a new and, word created. Right. Well, there well, are a whole bunch of them floating around too, right? There's Z's. There's Z's. And the other thing that I, that I will say is, people vote. A culture votes with its feet, or in this case, with its mouth. Over time, or mouse, and w- uh, yeah, uh, with a culture votes with their uh, no, okay, forget. <laughs> uh, and and over time, these decisions are made in a sort of de facto way. What's interesting about the role of of um, the New York Times or of dictionaries? There's a sort of interesting parallel to the role that the Supreme Court plays vis-a-vis evolving social mores. Should should a dictionary? or a newspaper sort of be on the forefront of this, making decisions that reflect what it believes is coming next, or should it sort of play a catch-up role? 
and, um, and, 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 and validate this once it's sort of already been accomplished culturally. By the way, I don't have an answer to that, but I think it's, it sets so up th the problem. So what do you think the time should have done then in the instance of this particular person, that they just drop the honorific altogether, which is what most newspapers would Wouldn't do? Wouldn't you use the one that they want to go by, though? Isn't that kind well, of the, the back... Well, that's not how newspapers – I mean, newspaper-style books are inherently Procrustean, right? I mean, they sort of make things sort of fit. And, and the goal of the newspaper-style book is to have everybody at the newspaper do the same thing as opposed to doing what the person you're talking to wants you to do. So, I mean, I'm not saying that's great, but that's what they exist for. So my guess is that they're going to be a little bit more prescriptive um, and, and a little less descriptive. Dictionaries, which we'll talk about and if we have a couple of seconds here where I'm under a different kind of clock today, um, will uh, would be a little bit different. Well, actually, let's do the dictionary anything right away. So, um, Rebecca, you kind of alluded to this, that, that, that we also saw an article about the fact that dictionaries, particularly online dictionaries, but uh, all kinds of dictionaries, are much more open to very quickly adopting things like Fleek and Yaz with three A's and WTF and NSFW and Bay and Bezzy and YOLO and WA and Fur Baby and MK. All these things are getting into various online dictionaries instead of waiting to see whether or not they prove themselves. Um, and I mean, th now you're back to Rand's question. Should dictionaries, what should dictionaries do? Um, should dictionaries try to create order or just reflect chaos? I don't know. I, I go back and forth on this because there is that conservative in me that wants to keep the dictionaries pure with real words that aren't abbreviations or amalgamations of several words or particularly trendy. However, as I said before, I do think that keeping a record of language, even if it's just to remind us how silly we've become, is a worthwhile endeavor and something that we should continue to do, if not maybe restrict them to the online dictionaries and not taint the poor OED with Queen and Yas and all these other crazy words that we've invented in the last year. <laughs> although, Jacques, the K. although, Jacques, one thing I want a dictionary to do, I want to be able to look up a word I don't know. And a lot of exactly. these words that come flying at me, I'd like to look them up somewhere. What happened to Urban be Dictionary? Because I love Urban Dictionary. But the thing is, Urban Dictionary is, is crowdsourced. Right. And yeah. so it's not authoritative Maybe in any way. Maybe it's time for an official... Oxford English Urban Dictionary. Well, I think that's you know that's sort of where they're headed with the online thing. I I've seen YOLO and I didn't know what it meant until we started this conversation. Uh, you know uh, that this was going to be a subject, and I was like, oh, I can finally find out what YOLO means. Now I've already forgotten what it means. You only live once. You only live once. That's right. Uh, and so I was happy that there was a resource there that, that was uh, trustworthy and not misleading when it came to it. I, I don't see a problem with I it. I do think that etymologically it's, it's interesting to figure out where these words have came from. Yeah. Although, Rand, well, this will probably be the last comment before we go to break here, but, um, you know, dictionaries have two functions. One of them is the one we're talking about. You see something, you don't know it, you look it up. And maybe it says something like non-standard or who knows whether this is going to make it into the canon or something next to it, but at least you can find it. But the, the other way that my parents used to use it, and sometimes we do use it in journalism, which is to figure out whether a word is a real word or not. Um, you know, and so the dictionary is the thing you pull off the shelf to adjudicate something, like what's the status of the language right now vis-a-vis -vis this word. And on that score, you know, opening up the floodgates to pretty much everybody starts to water down its, its significance that way. Well, it, it's interesting, and I guess this just restates the, the problem, but there's an inherent tension with the dictionary between its gatekeeping function and its sort of descriptive historian function. So uh, you can sort of stress which side is most important to you. I think we live in, 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 in an age, certainly here, in a cultural moment that would, that would stress the sort of keeping up with what's happening in the culture function of a dictionary. And that's a great function of a dictionary. But I, I, I don't think that uh, any of us would want to 
well, I don't know about any of us, but probably not a lot of us will want to completely eradicate and obliterate the sort of authority function that a dictionary has. And I think the key to that probably has to do with a little bit of persistence over time. As I said, you know, a word, if it makes it, you know, it, it, it makes it for at least a while, and it becomes a more powerful meme, lexical meme, that gets into people's minds. And there's a certain critical threshold above which, like, everyone agrees, oh, that baby, that word is in. But still, you want to be able to look up Desi, otherwise you'll have FOMO. Anyway, we have to go. We have to take, take a quick break. <laughs> yeah, we'll be back. Yeah. <laughs> Hickey, hockey, holy, bagel, bugle, bowling, macadamia, vestibule. So this is the time of year where people start putting out their best of list, best of everything. Even the Obamas, uh, both President and Mrs. Obama, uh, did best of lists. Um, I would argue that they're maybe the, one of the first first couples, maybe the first first couple, who have a broad enough sampling of culture to be able to do this. Uh, although obviously Bill Clinton was pretty voracious in lots of ways too. Um, but uh, so anyway, uh, Michelle Obama reveals that she loves Uptown Funk by Bruno Mars. That's her song of the year. Her husband says it's Kendrick Lamar's How Much a Dollar Cost. The president, uh, um, his favorite book, his book of the year is Fates and Furies by Lauren Groff. I saw a tweet from Lauren Groff saying, that's it. I retire. Um, <laughs> the first uh, lady's, uh, uh, the top of her book list is Light of the World, Elizabeth An- Alexander's amazing memoir about the death of her husband. Um, the best of a TV show for Barack Obama is The Nick. Uh, for Michelle, it's Blackish. Uh, so even, even they do it. Um, and so the first question is I mean, we're, there's this, we're, it's going to be a deluge over the next two weeks uh, or three weeks of best of lists and people debating best ofs and stuff like that. And so the first question is, do we, do we enjoy that or, or do we feel assaulted? Are there too many best of lists? And, and is there kind of a feeling like you're running around trying to catch up with other people's best ofs? Uh, so, Rebecca, where are you on that? I love it. Yeah. I find that it's a way for me to catch up on stuff that I didn't know existed. I just was reading best 10 TV shows from the year and there was a stars drama and I don't really ever watch anything on stars. And it was called Flesh and Bone and it's about ballerinas. And it was wonderful. And I had no, I would never have known about this had it that list not come up. So I think it is kind of a catch-all for things you may have missed in the year. I do think it's done to excess when you're seeing, you know, the best in Taylor Swift squad for 2015 drives me a little nuts. But <laughs> when it comes to music and TV, I don't mind it. Actually, Jacques contributed to that list, I think, the best yes. in Taylor uh, Swift. Uh, how, do you, how do you feel about that? You know, I... Uh on Taylor Swift squad or just no, the no. top ten list? <laughs> the top ten list, best okay. of list, all that kind of stuff. Um, you know, it, I, I'm always, always drawn to them. Mm-hmm. I'm always drawn to them, and I'm almost always infuriated <laughs> as a result <laughs> of them. Like, I just got the Rolling Stone with their best of, and it's, you know, as per usual, half the list are, you know, white men in their 60s uh, who they – you know, no matter and what they're not, they, they're not even musicians; they're just white men in their sixties. Well, no, <laughs> but I mean, it's like you know, uh, you know, it's it's like Don Henley's album mm-hmm. and all these things. You know, like it seems like they still can't look at sort of these young, vital artists. It's like last year they they named U 2s album the best album of the year, and oh. it's like exactly, <laughs> and it's like really, really, and so and and uh, oftentimes I would run out and you know, get or download whatever they considered the best album of the year. And one year it was Frank Oren, uh, Frank, uh, Ocean, what's his? Frank Ocean. Frank Ocean. Great yeah. album. Which is a and great album. Great album. Yeah, but I like listen to it once. And, and so. Oh, why I, see the world when you've got the beach? Come on now. Yeah, and so, I mean, song. I'm not saying it's a bad album, but, you know, I, 
I've stopped using it as a means of making cultural decisions for me. I just still navigate by my own bad taste. I do love the idea that President Obama is listening to that Kendrick Lamar. Me too. <laughs> MCD, that makes me and Uptown Funk is a jam. Yeah. Uh, I'm Team Flotus on this one. <laughs> <laughs> so um, I'm with you on that too. So, Rand, what about this? Do they play a useful function or are they just kind of well, intellectual uh, flotsam at this point? No, no. It's actually, I, I suppose, somewhat confessionally, I'll, I'll say I approach the end of the year and its lists with, with dread <laughs> and uh, indeed anxiety. Um, and because you're afraid you won't be on them. No, no, okay. good God, not that. Um, and I don't mind fishing or poaching from other people's interesting lists. That's not the problem. But um, the, the the prospect of making such a list mm-hmm. it reminds me, um, like almost nothing else does, of 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 this cultural predicament that we're in. Or maybe you guys aren't. You you're confident making lists, but th- there's almost nothing that I feel sufficiently <laughs> comprehensively knowledgeable about, even to begin to make a list. And I, I just, it makes me recall what I now think of as like a prelapsarian experience of childhood, which is having been a sports geek at age, say, 12, and I knew everything about, say, the National Football League. And, and I would have been able to talk vehemently and passionately for hours about just about every player in the league. Nowadays, I feel like I'm, I'm running around trying to get a, a few crumbs of this or that slice of the cultural pie. And, and it's sad, but true, that there's no part of that cultural pie, you know, that I've eaten enough of to be able to sit. Like, probably the only list I could make with any authority is, Restaurants in Central Connecticut. <laughs> yeah, you know, there, boy, I feel. I would read that list. I, I feel pretty secure, but otherwise, it's like, yeah, okay, I read this novel I liked, but oh, how about those other ninety-eight novels that I didn't read? Or and then, you know, TV. Yeah, I have like these four shows I, I watch, but I mean, there's like so many amazing shows that I don't even know the names of. So that's why I feel honestly palpable anxiety tinged slightly with cultural despair. But that's a good argument for like Rand Cooper's top favorite 10 things of 2015, and then they could be anything. And I see more and more lists like that, too. They don't stick to a discipline or a category. Uh, they just sort of move around a lot. And so Slate had one uh, this week that was, it wasn't rooted in any particular character, any, any uh, category. I just gave it away. It's, it's sort of best character of the year, but it says the bulldozer charisma of Empire's Cookie, the perfect narrative use of sadness in Inside Out, the sneaky comic timing of LeBron James and Trainwreck, tenacious clever Pip and Jonathan Franzen's purity, Jessica Jones's nightmare-inducing Kilgrave, those are some of their favorite characters, and then some of their critics chimed in with racist Atticus Finch and <laughs> Ghost at a Watchman, Titus Andromedon, whom we've just been rhapsodizing about off the air in Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt, Robert Durst, who's an actual real-life human being, in The Jinx, uh, Larry David playing Bernie Sanders. I mean, I like that idea because it, it's not stuck in a category. It's like all kinds of well, things. Well, so then I would start with Pope Francis. Pope Francis is your favorite character of the year? Or well, favorite well, thing no, of, favorite? You know, since I'm not trying to be responsible yeah. to any category, yeah, I like then it. I like next where I would go. With deviled eggs, yeah. See, because <laughs> see? they're they're making a very interesting culinary comeback. This is a great list already. Uh, Pope Francis and deviled eggs. Although he might be a little uh, uncertain about his proximity to deviled well, eggs. Third, but. I would go with Dirk Nowitzki. Um, <laughs> There's always going to be a big German somewhere on Rand's list. See, that's a good and, and, list, and so on. Yeah, and so on. Yeah. So, did you have a favorite character of the year? Who who would you pick? 
Oh, I'm really back and forth between my deep love of Titus Andromedon um, and the Pinot Noir Ode. And I tell you what, I was blown away by the jinx and Robert Durst and that mm. figure. And Kate McKinnon's impression of Robert Durst also deserves to be on that list. Yeah, sort of almost anything that Kate, almost, uh, Kate yeah. McKinnon's Hillary Clinton Her Hillary also, is perfect. Too. And almost anything that Kate McKinnon, McKinnon does. Yeah, let's I, just call it Kate McKinnon and be uh, done with it. One of my favorite things of the year was Robert Durst, Durst guilt burping. You know how he, does, yes. he was doing that? He was doing, he was kind of burping guiltily when he realized that he sort of been caught. He did, he had, yes. that, was a, that was a great, there I put that in There was really something mesmerizing, particularly mesmerizing about Durst. Don't, don't you yeah. think? His black eyes just haunt my dreams to this day. I mean, you can cite all of these individual things, and it was it was it Laura Miller who wrote that in that list that you that you passed. I think along? it might be, yeah. Um, and and so there are all these the, the fact that he had a, a, a flesh toned latex mask mm. with him. So you can cite all when 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 he was apprehended. You can cite all these so individual crazy. things, but there's some way in which he speaks to something larger culturally that's that's really. Mm. Interesting and scary. Jacques, what's in your highly eclectic list? Give us one or two things. Oh, Favorite geez. things from 2015. Um, if you need time to think, I'll tell you uh, why, why you're thinking. Well, I could, I, go ahead. I, well, I already admitted to you to you guys communally via email that I became obsessed with the Carly Rae Jepsen song, I Really, Really, <laughs> Really, Really Like You. Mm-hmm. It was my ringtone. Everyone in the office hated me for it. <laughs> It is the video is the cutest thing in the world, and I was so surprised it wasn't you know the song of the summer. Darn you, Uptown Funk! But I also love that song. Um, and uh, David Crabb, I don't know if you know he's he's uh, he's a he's a mouth Grand Slam winner, and he's got a memoir uh, about called Bad Kid about his time growing up in Texas as a gay goth, and it's funny and heartbreaking, and he's like my little personal hero now. All right. The only one that I had to contribute looking at Slate's list, uh, uh, nothing mesmerized me as much this year uh, on the screen anyway, is Jason Siegel as David Foster Wallace in the uh, end of the tour. I, I, to me, I, I certainly, I, I, what a character. I mean, David Foster Wallace himself is an amazing character. Uh, and then what, uh, what Jason Siegel did with this, uh, I mean, I really felt like I was not watching acting, which is kind of a, that rare feeling. So uh, when I start my uh, top 10 list or my best of the year or whatever, um, boy, Pope Francis would be hard to keep off my list. He's been really good this year, huh? All right. So we're going to take a little break here. When we come back, we're going to talk about candidate quirks. Um, there's been some interesting things going on with Ted Cruz in the last 24 hours. <laughs> Very interesting things. Uh, and then Marco Rubio and his peculiar affection for water. I mean, we all like water, but this is getting a little extreme. Making a list. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. Cross a few off, then I'll start again. Today's show was produced by Colin McEnroe and me, Kyone Wolf, with help from Betsy Kaplan, who could water drink Marco Rubio under the table. Greg Hill appeared in the intro and tweets for us at WNPR Colin. Sarah Flaherty and Amanda Gallagher appear on our Best Interns of 2015 list. The part of Bill Curry was played by Uncle Sam the Eagle. For show pages, articles, and videos of the Here and Now staff yelling, you get to be the monkey in the house, visit our website, wnpr.org slash calling. On Monday's show, we consider the return of cereal and Justice Scalia kicks a racial tripwire. And now, back to the nose. All right, so we are back. I hope we have time to explain You Get to Be the Monkey in the House, which I think would be the title of this uh, nose episode. But uh, with us, uh, Rand Richard Cooper, Jacques Lamar, uh, and Rebecca Castellani. Um, We're talking about 
candidate quirks right now, and this uh, ranges from uh, Marco Rubio's um, formerly noted love of water. And by the way, that is true, what she just said. I mean, actually, I, I mentioned this in Betsy Kaplan's presence, and Betsy Kaplan, one of our producers, who doesn't, she's not one to brag, but she said, I could take them. She could drink, she could drink more water than Marco <laughs> Rubio. I mean, I've seen her do it. So, um, so anyway, there's this whole thing, and we'll explain a little bit more about that in just a second, ranging from the peculiar peculiarities of, of Ted Cruz. He's trying harder to be kind of a regular person. Uh, this has not always gone well. There's uh, this huge video dump of 15 to 16 hours of video, uh, the raw video that was shot for future campaign commercials, which is unfortunately various members of the press found uh, and started screening and started uh, kind of seeing certain levels of awkwardness that seemed to persist in his own life. And then there's, I don't know if, the, if it's fair, uh, there's the much-discussed Donald Trump's uh, encounter with the eagle, um, where the eagle kind of gets mad at him at a certain point. Um, I don't know. I think I would react to an angry eagle pretty much the same way. Maybe that's not a quirk. But one thing that we know is that when candidates are quirky, when they do something odd, we can have two possible reactions to it. You know, that's kind of endearing. That's kind of nice. He's showing, he or she's showing his or her human side. They're showing their human, their human side. Uh, or we can go, that's really weird. Uh, that's, and so, and, and a lot of times it's the thing that people take for granted about themselves. LBJ thought it was okay to pick up a dog by its ears. Uh, the rest of the country did not. Um, you know, there are things like that where it just seems as though there's something very, very strange about this person. I can come up with other examples. And so, yes, indeed, uh, Marco Rubio does drink a lot of water. He's kind of famous for it. Uh, he became famous five years, uh, about, uh, no, it was more recently than that, uh, after a, um, a speech by uh, President Obama, a State of the Union speech. Um, Rubio was chosen to give the Republican response, and he like he couldn't get through it without drinking out of this water bottle. But apparently it's something he does all the time. Well, actually, let's listen to Donald Trump because you know if Donald Trump says it's probably true. So here's Donald Trump explaining it. Marco Rubio, who has the worst voting record in the United States Senate, and a young guy, although he, he sweats more than any young person I've ever seen in my life. I've never seen a person sweat. I've never seen a guy down water like he downs water. I've never seen they bring it in in buckets for this guy. It's uh, Jeb Bush and John Kasich laughing in the background. No, not really. No. Um, and, and Ted Cruz is kind of on this, like, that you was know. a little Trumpian of you, right? Yeah. <laughs> Ted Cruz, who's kind of, you know, uh, trying to get people to like him. He's famously unlikable. The New York Times had this description of him kind of working a crowd. Uh, he goes up to a little boy. Uh, he, he says he squatted, he squinted, he had heard something about a toy collection. And so about three feet above the floor of an American Legion hall, the uh, senator began his questioning. You have lots of toys? He asked three-year-old Isaac Jocelyn. Nothing. What's your favorite to toy? More silence. Do you have a dinosaur? Do you have a fire truck? Do you have a toy monkey? Isaac stared blankly. A toy monkey, Mr. Cruz shouted, revving for a punchline no one understood. You know what that means? You get to be the monkey in the house. So these are candidates trying to be regular people, and they often are not. So, I mean, I don't know. How do we feel about things like that? Does it, does it undercut? Well, actually, and Rebecca, I know you've been studying some of the, uh, the Ted Cruz commercial tapes. Um, as a young person, does, do these people now strike you as more Martian-like than before? Ted Cruz, yes. Marco Rubio, strangely, no. The water thing with him somehow endeared me to him more. Um, I think that I found it rather humanizing, um, if not an outright endearing. And I think that, you know, in this election in particular, any eccentricity counts when you're trying to trump Trump. Um, 
Ted Cruz's video was one of the most bizarre things I have ever seen. It was just these bizarre staged false conversations where he's getting his niece and nephew to read lines and his poor mother and it was just bizarre and I don't know I read I then went on a rampage of reading all this stuff about Ted Cruz and some of his the things he said I mean he's been the first candidate to openly say you wouldn't want to have a drink with me in a bar I'm pretty boring he is very clearly but then he memorized. said but I would drive you home but he drive you home yeah, yeah. he said I'll, I'll drive you home and you'll get home safe yeah he uses you know things like Jiminy Cricket and it just seems very rehearsed and disingenuous to me and awkward. He's just awkward. There was uh, Frank Frank Bruni a couple of weeks ago in the New York Times wrote a column. Now, obviously, uh, the New York Times has its politics and Cruz is not going to fare very well. But the piece very convincingly set out to show that basically anyone who has ever known Cruz <laughs> really, really dislikes him. And, uh, and people who have worked with him, people he's worked for, people who have worked for him – he has inspired not only inspired no loyalty anywhere, but he's inspired a great deal of loathing. And there were just prime quotations from one of his college roommates at Princeton who said, I would rather open a phone book at random and pick the next president of the United States than have Ted be president. Another one said, why does, why does everyone take such an instant dislike to Ted Cruz? It saves time. And, uh, and, and so – to humanize the, – the, the, the tapes that you were watching, Rebecca, I think are devastating because um, the attempt to humanize him, Absolutely even <laughs> with his own family, shows him to be uh, woodenly unemotional. And there are these devastating scenes where he he's sitting with his own little daughters oh, on the bed and they're, 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 rehearse, they're, be, they're rehearsing and he's waiting for the next prompt. It's between takes. Uh, and he's waiting for the next prompt, and he just sits there silently and woodenly with his two little girls, unable or unwilling, it seems, to engage in any kind of fatherly bantering byplay. It with was them. like a family of robots trying to mimic human behavior as they'd read about it. I mean, it was just <laughs> awful. And, and so, Jacques, to that point, I mean, this is one of the questions we always have about these people: Are they real people? Are they pod people? Are they robots? Um, my favorite example of this—I can't remember what year it was—and there were lots of other reasons not to vote for Steve Forbes, whatever year that was. But uh, there was a description. I think Michael Thought about him and forever. Yeah, Michael Lewis. I think it was Michael. Thanks Lu- for that. Yeah, I think <laughs> I think Michael Lewis. Somebody, some writer like that was on the campaign trail and was with Steve Forbes in New Hampshire, where he was going at, uh, at some Lions Club buffet or something, and he was going through the line, the buffet line, and he was watching very carefully what the people ahead of him did, so that he would know how to be in this buffet, buffet line, how he would know like how much to get and what things to put on his plate, because it was just clear that my, Steve Forbes, who probably did have a pretty cosseted and cocooned life, just had never done this before. So he didn't want to do anything terribly wrong or out of kilter. So he was studying very carefully the behavior of other people. I, you know, that's disconcerting if they don't live that much in this world. But, you know, I I have to say I have a different reaction to the Ted Cruz video. Um, I mean, I found it amusing um, as a candidate, you know, I, that I would not vote for um, being embarrassed. But at the same time, you are very, you know, this is this is an awkward situation for their family. You know, this is it's not like the kids are groomed to be political beasts. It's not like his mother was groomed to be a political beast. It's not like they were wanting to be TV stars, and they are clearly being coached into creating the type of ads that we have seen for years yeah. of me with my my beautiful children in our very Christian home, and mom loves me, and all this stuff, and so. I think that there are probably videos 
of, you know, that are in cutting room floors of candidates we like a lot better that wouldn't seem entirely different. You know, draw a line and keep your family on the other side of it. Obama has. How, how, how much have you ever seen about his daughters? And I don't think that he ever used his family for campaign material. Michelle, possibly, but not the daughters. Uh, yeah. and, and one of the raps against Cruz that's reiterated by everyone who's ever known him is that his ambition, to use a word that is only ever used in connection with ambition, is so overweening that uh, nothing will will get in its way. And so I, I lump this into that kind of Yeah, thing. I mean, the thing is, I think, you know, if he's trying to paint himself as sort of an anti-Trump, you know, uh, a sweet little family homage right. is a direction to go in. But, yes. you know, but Rebecca's about Marco and the water, I think it's interesting because you, water, it, water does... It, it humanizes him in an interesting way. It, he's definitely a carbon-based life form, right? Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Well, we know that. I mean, he's just not the, a robot. And also his obvious need for it. There, there are moments when he's he has interrupted major speeches. What was, was what was the one? Was like yeah, a response to the State of the Union, union. Yeah. and he suddenly lunges off camera and gets this bottle. So there's the suggestion both of basic fit the, the body and its needs, but also something a little bit more like he he, he needs his water bottle. No, that's right. what endeared me to him was not his need for water, which is a human need we all experience, but, but the like nervousness. A, it was a nervous tick. a Linus-like blanket. Yeah, right. it was, you know, like biting your fingernails or something. You I know, totally <laughs> related to it. I can understand it. It's also very 2015. There's climate change. We're having droughts. Yeah. People who want water. It's also very Mad Max Fury Road, you know. It's invoked. Um, yeah, it's very invoked. I, I have to say, I was not aware of the water issue and. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that I think it was the first Republican debate. And when they were introducing him and he pulls out a water yeah. bottle and he's like, I knew about the drought, so I brought my own yeah. water. And I thought, what a terrible joke. Right. And I didn't realize it was attached to this it's history of voice. It's a big meme. All right. We've only got about three or four minutes left. We have to go through our endorsements, maybe a little bit more swiftly than usual. So, Rand, you go first. The year is drawing to a close, 2015. It is the 20th anniversary of the mainstay Hartford Institution of Black-Eyed Sallies. James Verano opened it in 1995 after taking a trip down to Memphis and New Orleans, and it has served as a high-functioning, delicious, and important place for Hartford for 20 years. So if it somehow has slipped off your radar... Get it back on and go to Black Eyes Salad. There's live music six nights a week. Yeah. We went in on a Tuesday night. There was a 16-piece uh, <laughs> brass band, jazz band there. It was awesome. All right. Jacques, what have you got for us? Um, I am in the midst of reading a book that actually isn't out until next week. Uh, but it, I really, really enjoyed it as a theater person and as a James Bond fan. It's called License to Quill, and it's by Jacopo Della Quercia. And um, it's a lot of fun about the gunpowder plot. It involves Guy Fox. It's really, really interesting. And I just want to put in a plug that Colin is going to be interviewing Daniel Dennett, the cognitive uh, scientist and philosopher, next Tuesday at the Mark Twain House. I'm so not ready for that. <laughs> All right. That's so, scary, actually. Yeah, that is. I feel actually very underpowered there. All right, Rebecca, what have you got for we us? Got two quick ones. It's Christmas in Collinsville this weekend. There's a lot of really fun family activities tonight. They've got horse-drawn carriage rides, tree lighting, a champagne walk from 6 to 9, and uh, the front woman of the Ronettes, Ronnie Spector, will be playing at Bridge hmm. Street Live. Uh, she goes on oh, at wow. 8. It's going to be real cool. Um, you can get tickets at the door or online, and if you're looking for more more information on that event, and I know there's some activities on Saturday, too. Go to visitcollinsville.com. Collinsville, the Montmartre of Central Connecticut. <laughs> <The Montmartre. laughs> 
And I, one other real quick one. Um, my really good friend, Christine Pettit, has got a great project that's coming up for 2016 called Transformations. It's focusing on women's stories after an event of trauma and the way uh, they can remain positive after overcoming adversity. She's kind of really shifting the narrative here. If you know someone who you believe would be suitable for this project, uh, do give Christine an email. She's at christine at pettitpicks.com. All right, so uh, from our little sort of community bulletin board, uh, our beloved uh, nose friend, uh, Carolyn Payne, uh, her Connecticut dance, Nutcracker Sweet and Spicy, is at the Etna Theater of the Wadsworth Athenaeum. I can endorse this because I've seen it in years past. It's really fun. It is not your mother or your father's Nutcracker, uh, and it's uh, tonight at 8 p.m., tomorrow at 8 p.m., and uh, Sunday at 2 p.m. I mean, really go see it and have fun, and there's, I think, uh, there are Nora Cupcake events associated with it, and I, I don't know what else. There's a red carpet opening night party at Vito's tonight. Anyway, uh, see if you can get behind that. And then here's my other endorsement is um, a lot of people will go into New York, uh, particularly if they're uh, putting together their top ten lists of the best theater of the year, trying to catch up on plays. Go downtown. I mean, you see, you can see great plays on Broadway, obviously. We pay a lot more money. Downtown, there's just this incredible web of wonderful little theaters where you don't pay as much, whether it's the Vineyard or Barrow Street or uh, the Atlantic, which I think is about to do uh, these paper bullets, which is a great show. Anyway, find out about the downtown theaters. I just saw The Flick. Uh, which is by Annie Baker. It won the Pulitzer Prize in 2014. It's an amazing play. It is, however, more than three hours long. It is, however, frequently very slow. <laughs> but it's it's a play that changed me more than any play that I saw this year. Uh, it's just an amazing show. And, you know, it's like the ticket is much cheaper than what you're going to pay to see something on Broadway. And you can't get tickets to Hamilton anyway. All right. Nice people are coming here now to tell you why you should support a show like the one you just heard. I hope you will answer the bell. Said that one, Avon, Farmington, All right, number one in the top ten list of worst public radio pledge drive gifts is a gift certificate to any Boston area Chipotle. Valid today only. I'm Mike Palmer uh, asking you to support the programming. I promise we have no Chipotle gift cards <laughs> available. Uh, you can support Colin McEnroe and all the programming here at WNPR by giving us a call. 1-800-584-2788 is the number. You can also go online to WNPR.org. Make your contribution there. Uh, Lee, we have just under $700 in so far for Colin this Great. hour. Um, that's fantastic, but we need to build on that. Um, we have to keep the momentum going that we've started today. I will be honest, this drive started off slowly and it did start to pick up over time but last starting yesterday and then through this morning we have started to see a groundswell of support from our listeners and that is fantastic because it means that our goal is now within sight we have done this before our listeners have responded before to help us meet goals like this we know that we can do it again but only with your help we need you to join those listeners who have stepped forward in the in the days and and weeks uh, previous to support WNPR and make your contribution as well join people like Catherine from South Windsor or Bruce from Shelton, uh, an anonymous donor from Glastonbury who said they love the Colin McEnroe show, anonymous donors from Vernon and West Hartford, um, as well as, uh, let's see, um, donors from Preston, Bristol, uh, Shelton, and um, Karen from Southbury. They have all made their pledges this hour. We want you to step forward and join them. Become the one of some of the listeners that make that commitment to become a supporter of the programming here. You can join them, 1-800-584-2788, or go online, wnpr.org. 
And there's no better show to support than the Colin McEnroe Show because this is something unique. It's very much ours. Colin is such a unique voice on the Connecticut landscape. I mean, he can effortlessly move between fine culture and pop culture. He has great curiosity for art, for music, for politics. I mean, you get everything on this show, and you never know exactly what you're going to find. And, Mike, I know the nose is my favorite. I mm. mean, just looking at what's happening on the news and getting their take on it, and today's show was another great one. Support what he does here. This is our last opportunity this week to support Colin McEnroe's show and your your last day, of course, to support this end-of-year campaign. It's so important that you join us right now. And remember, um, $6 a month will send you that brand-new WNPR Hartford Prince retro calendar. Beautiful item, homemade, designed by artists right here in Hartford. And we'd love to send it to you with our thanks. 1-800-584-2788. 1-800-584-2788 is the number. You can support online at wnpr.org. Help keep this last day strong. We know we can reach this goal, but only with your help. Support the the kind of radio where in one week you can hear a show about Dante and uh, reading Inferno with uh, prison <laughs> inmates, and then an entire um, hour devoted to Mad Magazine all in the same week. <laughs> Only Colin McEnroe can bring that to you. Only he could bring you a show like this. It's so important that you join those who have supported and support it now. 1-800-584-2788.